Hello, and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. I'm your host, Chris Peterson. As this is our first podcast of 2021, we want to wish everyone all the best for the year ahead. I've personally always diminished the technicality of a decade starting on the first versus the zero year. However, given the last 12 months, everything that needs to be accomplished in the sustainability space, and some of the encouraging sustainability signs we've seen over the last month, from Larry Fink's CEO letter and the intent of the executive orders out of the U.S., I'm all for a do-over of starting off the decisive decade. So with the second try, I'm eyes open optimistic for an energizing start to addressing the sustainability challenges and opportunities we have in front of us. We sincerely hope that you and yours are healthy, safe, and are feeling some of that excitement in your world as well. Today's podcast is a topic I wish we really didn't have to discuss in the 21st century, but tragically, forced labor is still an issue in our modern world, and it's one we cannot ignore. So to help us navigate the issues, understand efforts to eliminate it, and provide guidance on what we can do within our organizations to drive it out of our value chains, I'm really pleased to be joined by two colleagues, Adriana and Ramesh, today. Adriana Quintero is Managing Director of Anthesis Group France. And amongst other experience, Adriana has worked in government affairs, including international social standards compliance in the mining sector. The work she did there is part of a foundation of what a number of emerging regulations and successful practices are built upon within this space. And Ramesh Panavali is a senior consultant with Anthesis Group UK. And Ramesh has over 15 years of working with leading UK retailers, FTSE 250 companies, and multi-stakeholder initiatives on their global sourcing. He's worked with suppliers remotely and on the ground all over the world, creating programs on transparency, managing risk, ethical trade strategy, due diligence programs, capacity building, purchasing practices, and women empowerment programs. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is such a tricky topic and one that you always hope will go away, but I think the headlines that we've seen recently have really brought this back to everyone's awareness, including mine of the criticality of it and the fact that it's still there. And I'm wondering if maybe the two of you could give us a little context, a little catch up around what is happening for those like me that are being brought back into this space. So in terms of what's happening out there, it is a lot of legislation and across the global regulatory environment, which has been led to combat forced labor and to gain momentum as it shifts from a reporting requirement to a mandatory due diligence to legal trade for some countries. So, you know, there is a lot of focus on human rights due diligence when it comes to legality of trading. And this has actually been exasperated by the COVID, which has recently happened. There is more legislation appearing across in countries like UK, in the US, and Canada, France, etc., where this is a key focus. Last year, on April 29th, and this was in the mid, mid of COVID, that the European Commissioner for Justice, Didier Reiner, announced that the European Union plans to develop a legislative proposal for mandatory due diligence in the EU. And if adopted, this legislation will require all the business to carry out due diligence in relation to potential human rights and environmental impacts. And it is basically looking at a wider areas of John Ruggie's principles on human rights, like protect, respect, and remedy. And also this particular clause will also involve large corporations to be a part of human rights. And if they don't do it, 
there will be fines imposed, there will be legislations imposed. So these are some of the things which have been going on in the current world. And obviously, in the, from the UK perspective, there has been areas where Modern Slavery Act, which was set out in 2015, has been more strengthened. And again, it, be, it becomes part of the trade across. And there's more and more focus on supply chains in a bigger way to look at transparency, to look at ethical trade, to look at environment legislations across the whole supply chain sector. Uh, Ramesh, thank you. Really encouraging to hear that pivot from a reporting exercise to, as you said, that legality of trade within that, right? And how do we make this really have teeth, if you will? And maybe, Adriana, could you speak to what's driving that at the moment, this kind of heightened awareness and efforts within the forced labor space? Well, I think this is part of a wider human rights conversation, Chris. It has been going on for several years. I mean, having worked in the mining sector with this, the extractors were one of the first industries to begin to have to address these sort of things and really uh, respond to the kind of impacts that they were having on the ground, be responsible for some major human rights violations as well as having to really maintain sort of their license to operate. But up until now, to a very large extent, this has been voluntary. So it's great to see, and especially this is a big year, where, as Ramesh has rightly said, COVID, I think, has expanded our awareness of the vulnerability to which many communities and populations, the type of vulnerabilities that they're exposed to, So I think it's important that we realize that businesses have a very important role to play within human rights. It's not always that obvious. Of course, it's important to create jobs and to have productivity. But at the same time, I think human rights really need to be addressed. And there has been legislation that has already been put in place for several years back, like, for example, the French duty of vigilance law that have been the precursors to a lot of what is now being seen. And I mean, as as Ramesh rightly said, the UN guiding principles that were set in place as sort of a direct result of much of what was going on in extractives set the ground for much of what we're going to be seeing coming forward. I'd like also to add that obviously the essential business are currently inadvertently exposing workers to the conditions of forced labor. So there are many cases, obviously, that the products or the orders from all the countries which go into in the supply chains because of the last few months on the COVID, the orders were cancelled and there has been a big impact on the supply chains. And it's that in certain countries, obviously, now the countries are bouncing back and the orders have come back and there is, you know, much more attention towards work. And this is tight production windows, last minute orders, short term contracts, which is again pushing the workers in the supply chain to do more and asking them to do more than the required country law hours. And that creates more and more rush orders, which drives into the modern slavery issues in the supply chain. So that's one of the things which has been noticed. So I think part of the vulnerabilities that have come forward, especially with COVID, is, I mean, obviously with the impact on the economy and on our health systems, we've seen sort of these vulnerabilities of not just frontline workers, but there's many others. I mean, for example, there have been studies that have shown that seafarers, where there can be up to 400,000 people who are stranded at sea with retained passports, with no pay, the issues around migrant workers who have been stranded in countries that are not theirs, who may have either lost their jobs 
or are not able to earn a living. This also includes potential sort of extension to domestic workers. In total, according to the International Labour Organization, the ILO, the estimates are that the impact of COVID on jobs will be around 195 million people who will be losing their jobs around the world. And of those, there is a large majority that are in these very precarious situations. Yeah, it's very sobering to just think about that scale of challenge, right? And what that looks like going ahead. All right. So as we think about some of those underlying challenges that are just persistent and drive a lot of the work here, whether it's the new things that are emerging to that, but the things that sit underneath it that we still need to drive out. Could the two of you speak to that a little bit further? Yeah. Let me start about you know looking at the key sourcing countries across the world and what are the key impacts and what has been happening. So let me start with China, for example. I mean, China obviously is an example of transformative power in the market economy, second largest economy in the world and second largest importer across many products and many, many categories. In that case, I mean, in China, uh, there has been cases of child labor in different provinces where underage workers were forced to work overtime in the particular sectors. And it's not only that, you know, there has been various uh, electronic companies. These are big companies who have been working on certain exploitative conditions in the factories where students from vocational Chinese courses have been asked to work in these factories to look at uh, manufacturing. And this particular students have been kind of under threat of failing to graduate if they don't work in those factories. So such are the kind of forced labor in those countries. And obviously, I'd like to talk about the latest area of basically the Muslim Uyghur, which has been currently in the news. We are looking at the Xinjiang province of detention and prison camps. But those are some of the things which has come into places and where this has been taken seriously by different country governments and they are looking at this in a bigger picture and have put a part and this have been looked into as a part of trade deals. Certain product categories also are represent high risk if they are going to be imported from certain countries. It might be, you know, electronic products, it might be apparel, it might be uh, food sector, etc. Fish, for example, in different countries. So that's one of the things. Then, then looking at the second country, which is India, one of the key things, again, looking at the apparel sector where we are looking at something known as bonded labor. And this is in South India where we are talking about a scheme known as Sumangali workers, where women workers are taken from their houses in the promise of being given a lump sum amount and they are taken into the factories. And they are actually led by an agent recruiter in the supply chains who then pr promise them work. They go into these factories and they, they are stranded for three years. And basically, it's a kind of bonded labor where they are not even allowed to come out of their houses in the nights. And they work like 24 cities factories with precarious working conditions. So that's one. Turkey, we had issues. I mean, this is a key issue which has been going on for the last three years on Syrian workers. Where after the war, the Syrian workers went into the Turkish region you know, looking for work. And they are working in, again, coming back to different industries, they ask for work, but they are not given the same rights as of the normal Turkish workers. I cannot less than speak about UK. I mean, UK is another big country where we had Modern Slavery Act come into this picture. Again, looking at the apparel sector where there are issues in the supply chain where people are not properly 
looked at, they are not proper working conditions, they're not paid the minimum wage, there are no proper rights, etc. And so that that's a big, bigger issue what I see in the current context, looking at specific sourcing countries. Yeah, it's really frightening to think about the pervasiveness of that. I, I would hope that it's self-evident that everybody is against this. So why have we failed to drive it out of our supply chains? And why does it continue to exist? What are some of the challenges and I think the biggest challenges is obviously, you know, having a complete due diligence process within the place and obviously the responsibility and onus of the factory or the companies who actually manage these supply chains, then there needs to be a proper governance process in place. And the most key important thing is transparency. And if that is not there, again, there is a big issue. And that's one of the key things where... In fact, many of the brands and retailers or the companies in the supply chain, only, only their first year, whom they kind of interact, where they place purchase orders, they understand what they source from. But all the supply chain, all the, the modern slavery or either, you know the human rights exploitation all happen below the first year. So it's all in the second year, third year, etc. to the fact that it goes to the raw materials, as Adrianam already mentioned about, for example, you know the mining sector. It's right down to the raw materials where these issues happen. And I think it says a lot. I mean, this was probably a long time coming that we begin to review a lot of these practices. And it's not something new. It's something that has existed for a long time. And you will remember sort of the issues that Nike had in their supply chain around child labor that led to the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and other such initiatives. And really, I just think that potentially because of COVID, but I think also a lot of hard work by a lot of very dedicated people on this. This is a constant struggle, I think, to be able to create these kind of changes. We're all inherently more aware of human suffering and the consequences of our actions. And I think it's coming through from becoming a very sort of specialized area that people who are working on these subjects are informed of to now coming right down to a consumer level where we're now being asked, you know, who made your clothes? What sort of conditions have they been working in? Are they paid a fair wage? Are they able to maintain their family? Are they able to have quality of life? And this is, again, as Ramesh has mentioned, it doesn't come from necessarily low-income countries as we would imagine those would be the conditions to be had. Ramesh has mentioned conditions equally in, in, in countries like the United Kingdom, where you really wouldn't expect these things to exist. So, yes, as you rightly say, Chris, this answers to the pervasiveness of, of this whole thing. But I think one of the things that we need to do is to become more informed about this. And for this also, as a subject, to be something that we really, truly begin to look at as individuals and make the effort to begin to look into these things, that it isn't a very specialized area, but something that all of us are responsible for becoming better informed on. Mm -hmm. I know in our earlier conversations, interesting to think about how it's not just fast fashion. It's not just the sneakers that are the issue, right? It is this hitting every industry. And if we're not conscious of it and... As you said, Ramesh, really think about transparency and ensuring and driving it out of our value chains, right? There's a high risk of it entering into those. Regarding the challenges is also 
looking at brands and retailers can do at the most. And it's also the responsibility of the governments of this, where the production or the sourcing countries or where the trade occurs is they ha- they too have a responsibility. The United Nations guiding principles on human rights, John Ruggie's framework is a perfect example where he's talking about protect, respect and remedy, where it's the state's duty to protect uh, workers from human rights abuses. So the government has a responsibility to, to enforce this. So that's one of the key important things. And obviously the second is respect, which is talking about the business who have the fundamental response to respect human rights throughout their supply chains. And there's a wider piece on remedy, which is once an issue occurs, what are the grievance mechanism that goes into this remedy? It might be judicial, it might be non-judicial, etc. nature. So this particular kind of model has taken precedence and it's one of a very good model, which I think every country needs to follow and enforce. So... Ramesh, could you maybe just expand on the due diligence piece? You've mentioned that a few times being really fundamental, and I'd be interested to hear what does that really look like in practice? So in practice, it looks at understanding your supply chains, and that's transparency is the key. So if you have your supply chains, you should know what constitute the supply chain. So it's it's your understanding your suppliers, it's understanding your production sites, and it's like tier one, tier two, tier three coming out with a complete transparency and then going for each site, looking at the site production area and the human rights element of each site. So looking at workers, so their wages, working hours, the contracts, etc. in that particular country, whether they are given proper well-being, uh, the health and safety inside that. So understanding and seeing that those legislations uh, and the laws of that particular country is coherent with what the factory or the production center needs to be and monitoring them through a complete framework within your company. So it might be due through assessments, it might be through third-party due diligence, it might be ongoing monitoring area. So if, for example, if there is a particular site which has got issues on child labor, there should be a remedial mechanism or if they have an issue of wages, that should be addressed to see that. So that particular grievance mechanism should be there. It should be a part and parcel of your company principles and business policies. No, it's really helpful to have that kind of framework to to think that through. And I'm keen for us to pivot to what do you do? How do you go forward on this? But before we do, I wonder if maybe just you could each just take a minute to talk about a regulation that you see emerging as being exemplary of what you expect the trends to be or, you know, in its scope and scale. Ramesh, do you want to take a first pass at that? Uh, so one of the key legislations, I mean, from the UK perspective, is the Modern Slavery Act, which got enforced in 2015. And so that particular act requires commercial organizations carrying out businesses in UK with a turnover of more than £36 million to publish a modern slavery statement every financial year. So that are the key requirements. And and this particular kind of statement has specific guidelines for each statement. And this has obviously come from the Home Office in the UK. So it it needs to contain an organization structure, the business and the supply chains. And it's not only the business, but also if they have corporations outside UK or subsidiaries outside UK, this this particular statement should also cover that. It should contain policies and uh, to slavery and human trafficking. It should have in its supply chain details, due diligence processes, who is responsible for that particular supply chain and the governance process, 
and also if there are issues how do you kind of remedy it and of, of recently obviously the government has taken more stance and looking into it and they are kind of monitoring this from the home office perspective they have also said that they'll be introducing fines if no company has a statement going forward we do have a modern slavery statement which is available in our website even though we don't fall under the 36 million category but we've taken a due diligence approach and put out our statement for that matter so that is one of the key legislations which i see and obviously it has also been included in the global trade of recently when it comes to you know companies importing from china but it's not just just china it'll be mandatory across all countries. Thank you for, for that context. I think this is really helpful to understand. And Adrian, just before we move on to shifting what to do here, any additional kind of quick thoughts and comments on the regulatory space? Yes, thank you, Chris. So Ramesh has already talked about the UK Modern Slavery Act, and I'm based in France. So here, I think France has acted as a... Um, precursor to um, what is going on right now uh, around potentially mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence uh, through the European Union um, through their duty of vigilance law, which was set out in 2017. Now, there are some sort of considerations around that as to where it has been effective and it was ambitious, but where perhaps it failed in in in, in truly having the right scope um, and impacts that uh, many people would want to see around this. So I think EGU legislation is looking to improve upon some of the failings that were seen from the duty of vigilance law uh, set out in France. Though, as I say, it was a, f- a really good first step. So we've also seen in the Netherlands implementation of the child labor due diligence law in 2017. Now, there have been several instances of child labor along different supply chains in, in, in several sectors. Um, the interesting thing around this, of course, is companies need to consider local legislation as well. It isn't enough to just do a blanket um, assumption that anybody under the age of 18 would not be implicated. Some local legislation accounts for the fact that in in some countries, children below the age of 18 are an important part of the family income. uh, And they allow for under very clear conditions um, that this is permitted. So I think it's to the onus also of uh, companies to understand the local context ensuring that uh, there is the right to education, there is, uh, they're not exposed to any sort of dangerous work, and there's a limitation also on the type of hours and type of work that they're doing. Um, other regulation that has come forward, of course, is around conflict minerals that has reinforced much of what is look at being looked at um, in, in human rights. And I think in general, parallel to what is now being seen around mandatory human rights and um, environmental due diligence is the um, strengthening of the regulatory framework um, around standards for non-financial reporting. There's a directive that is uh, also underway. Um, So I think much of this regulation, what it is doing is really looking at how companies are monitoring and enforcing uh, much of their practices around this space. Thank you both for the context around regulations. And I know there's so much more to dig in there, but I'm going to pivot us to what to do. 
what should organizations and individuals within those organizations be doing to address this? In terms of uh, the first thing which we need to do is understand our supply chains you know, much deeper into wider context horizon, understanding the tiers, which I explained earlier on. But one of the things from the COVID experience that is understanding how the impact COVID has on, on the supply chains is another big thing. And there should be a continuous monitoring system in terms of workers' due diligence, workers' rights and workers' well-being in that matter. Now, one of the things we do is that we help our corporate clients to understand the COVID response tracker. Now, this is something we are doing in the UK for leading supermarkets, where we actually work with the data from the Oxford University through the Black Munich School, where we actually look at a COVID response tracker, understanding key issues and key containment issues in the global sourcing regions. And this particular data is fed to the brands and retailers who then pass it on to the suppliers to look at how things are changing on a day-to-day basis in terms of the COVID response and the government response tracker in these particular areas. So that's one of the things we do for brands and retailers here in the UK. The second thing Anthesis have is something known as a risk horizon tool where we actually can look at country risks, the sector risk, etc., for a particular country and then look at it in on, on a wider context for forced labor or human rights, etc., in that particular category of, of products. And we've got a wide width of sector knowledge and industry knowledge of our key consultants who actually offer a lot of knowledge in this particular area. We also currently do a lot of validation, independent evaluation of supply chains in this particular area. Like, for example, currently we are doing for one particular investor in the UK where we are looking at their client supply chains before actually going for bigger investments. And we are monitoring what due diligence they have done in terms of managing their supply chains, in terms of their factories, in terms of their workers, etc., looking at assessments, etc. And recently, The investors have taken a key interest in this particular area. And before any investment is done across any companies, they look at this particular area and then they decide whether the supply chains do not give any reputational risk in the future. So that's one of the key things which you do. We offer expertise on modern slavery statements, policies, building procurement practices, etc., which looked at forced labor in a bigger way. The key area which need to mention is United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which are focused across the world. And this is something where brands and companies are looking at. Every organization currently is mapping their processes and policies into United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And since today's podcast is about forced labor, obviously, goal eight from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals looks at modern slavery, looks at forced labor, and goal 10 looks at decent working conditions. Yeah, no, thank you. I think really helpful to get that perspective. Maybe taking that into the company, how does that look like for a company looking to get their arms around this? First of all, we're conducting a hotspot analysis of your key operations and supply chain for modern slavery or you know human rights risks. So again, understanding the paths of operations, supply chains, uh, or sector or product-related risk, going deep into that. And it's looking at how that particular factors increases the vulnerability of workers So use of temporary or migrant workers. One of the bigger things is looking at reporting this and on a wider context, that's also part of the transparency piece. In the UK, we have something known as a transparency pledge, 
where every company has to sign up to it. This is from the retailer perspective and demonstrate all the due diligence. They have to put all the production sites information on a public domain as a part of their reporting agenda. So that's one of the things. The other various reporting mechanisms such as the GRIs where this is more enforced. Apart from that, there is a bigger piece on the implementing bit, looking at how do organizations have create a grievance mechanism down at the ground level into practice. And here is where comes the, the key piece, which is a collaboration piece where companies impart with local partners on the ground. It might be NGOs. So for example, in a country like India, where the language is a problem, in that case, you have to partner with the local NGO to work out grievance mechanism. And again, it's all in a wider context, it's supporting the suppliers. And as brands and retailers are also companies, they should support the suppliers in protecting their workers. So it's a big amount also come into capacity building and training. So raising awareness about forced labor on the supply chains, it might be through various training mechanisms At the moment, because of COVID, there is a lot of online training mechanism which can be impacted. But again, it's on the ground where interacting with workers is also the key, where more impact to the workers can be done through training. Another big key focus is worker feedback. So providing a channel for workers to raise concerns. It's not just one way. So the workers have to also feedback about how they feel in the companies and what are the key issues. And so it might be the form of worker committees in organizations, which is a key part of freedom of association. So those are key things. And for a business to be resilient or to sustainable, they need to see the world clearly in this case, and they should anticipate a plan uh, of looking at this in a more holistic way. Mm. Uh, No, thank you for breaking that down. And Adrian, I know in previous conversations, you really thought a lot about the linkages to human rights. Do you want to speak to that just for a minute before we wrap things up? One of the important things for companies to keep in mind is that it isn't enough just to simply have a human rights policy in place. And no sector is exempt from this. I mean, we would usually uh, imagine that uh, companies that are working in the energy transition space, so in renewable energies and that, is benign and they are not exposed to this kind of risk. But The Business and Human Resources uh, Center have brought out a very useful application, which is called the Transition Minerals Tracker. They've seen through this that 103 companies that they've been looking at, 51 had allegations of human rights abuses, 29 of these um, had a human rights policy in place. So I think this follows through to what I was discussing about the French duty of vigilance law, where people have seen that it isn't enough for a company to have sort of the observable basics of having a human rights policy in place, of saying that they have internal training and that they have a grievance mechanism, but that really this has some teeth to it. So uh, they have to have some clear signals around the quality of human rights due diligence that is being done by a company. So for example, is governance around human rights being done at the highest level, so at a board member level? Is there meaningful engagement with stakeholders? Um, Is there a way that the company is prioritizing the risks Are they um, taking action around risks that have been identified? Uh, It could also be around evaluating 
if of those risks that have been identified, um, how are they demonstrating real progress around this? And also, uh, very often, it's sort of with the RUGGY framework of um, protect, respect, and remedy, are companies offering remedy around potential impacts that have been caused. So it isn't enough to just have a human rights policy in place. The legislation that has been proposed by the European Union will be extending how they are uh, looking for companies to really demonstrate a real uh, integration of, of, of um impacts being caused by their operations. And also another thing is that this is not just going to be for large companies. Uh, the French duty of vigilance law uh, includes only the largest companies that have between 5,000 and 10,000 employees, uh, both in France and uh, internationally. This new legislation is looking to uh, widen the scope to expand it to companies of all sizes. So this will be very interesting to see how it develops uh, going forward. Mm. Yeah. Thank you both so much. I mean, we've covered so much ground. Maybe just before we close, I'd love to hear from each of you if there's one key thing you would like people to walk away from this discussion with or an action that they should take going forward. Is there one that comes to mind? I think for me, the most important thing is transparency. Transparency enables companies to comply with a growing number of legal requirements, such as the Modern Slavery Act, EU Directive, Etc. So that that's one of the things, and it's also part and parcel of being competitive in the market. So more more transparent the company is, you get more competitive advantage. Like I did mention about the publishing the supply chain information, that means that the company has a mission. This is what the consumer needs also at the moment because there's a big focus on social media in this particular area, and where if there is a particular issue, the NGOs put it social media, etc. And as Adriana just mentioned, you know, the investors are looking it into a big way where share price immediately drops down. They rate the company down. So that's a bigger thing. Wonderful. Adriana, final thought from you? Yeah, my message would be really around, I think the companies think that having a human rights policy in place safeguards them against potential issues down the line and in their supply chains, but they really need to be looking at this and there is no uh, industrial sector that is exempt from this. Great. Yeah. Very sobering. So, you know, thank you both so much for the insight. This is a really difficult topic to discuss. And I just appreciate both of you coming on, sharing the the information we have and for the work you do in this space to, to reduce it. So thank you both very much. Really appreciate it. A pleasure to be with you, Chris. Thank you for inviting us and thank you to the listeners. Great. Thank you both very much. And again, thank you to all the listeners. Really appreciate that. We'll post a number of resources up in the description for this, including the UN Guiding Principles, links to some of the relevant sites on our thesis page, including supply chain support efforts, some of the tools that Ramesh mentioned earlier, as well as a blog post that Ramesh is putting together on this topic. So be sure to check those out. Thank you all again for listening and engaging around this topic. Until next time, stay safe and keep up. Well.